Hey guys, welcome to Chef Grace's place. Today I have Matthew Boynton of Sakamichi Brewery. Did I say it right? Yes, that's exactly right. Good morning or good evening. Uh, thank you very much for having me on. Cool. Um, so I'm really excited to have you as guests. I've never had a brewmaster on before, so uh, it's pretty cool. You're the first one. <laughs> Well, uh, that's that's very high praise. <laughs> and um, so Matthew runs a microbrewery in Japan, which is even cooler. Um, I really do like Asian beers, but I think as far as Japanese beers in America, I've only really had like Sapporo, I think. Um, they're kind of Aside from like those huge brands, like they're very hard to find here. Um, so I was wondering, you know, before we jump into uh, your journey, could you just give us a little bit of background on the beer industry and history of Japan? Right, yeah. So Sapporo is one of the big beer brands over here. Uh, I guess the other two would be Kirin and Asahi. Uh, and they're all... I've had those. <laughs> <laughs> so they're all basically the same. It's very hard to tell the difference between them when you just taste it. And they're all kind of light lagers. And that kind of speaks a lot to the history of beer in Japan. So originally, um, so the beer making industry, as we understand it today, was imported from Germany into Japan. So they brought across kind of light Pilsner style beers. Uh, and those are, have until recently been the only kind of beer that you could, you could really get in Japan. That makes sense. Cause those are very light beers. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty hot here in the summer. It's currently rainy season here. Um, so <laughs> it's raining every day and it's very humid. Uh, and in that kind of uh, weather, you know, a nice light lager really hits the spot. So, I mean, you don't look very Japanese to me. So how did uh, how did you wind up in Japan? Do I not? Do I not look Japanese? Uh, um, gives it away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I've been here for a while now. Um, what, 14, 14 years or so. Um, 14, yeah, even longer than that, maybe. Um, so the reason I'm in Japan is because when I was at university in Edinburgh, uh, I met my wife, who is Japanese. Um, she wasn't my wife when I met her, but uh, she was a she was a visiting student. Um, so she was over at Edinburgh University for a semester, uh, and we met. And then after that, I I moved back to moved to Japan to be with her after I'd finished university. It's a very romantic story. Did you study like food and beverage or is this a complete career change? Yeah, I studied history actually. Um, so it's it's got absolutely nothing to do with my degree, but that's lucky because I was a really terrible student and I don't really remember anything that I, I learned at university. Um, when I first came to Japan and until about four or five years ago, um, I actually worked as an English teacher. So I worked in the English teaching industry for the first 10, 11 years that I lived here in Japan. Uh, but then, yeah, I had a bit of a career change. I'd reached a kind of a natural endpoint, I felt, to that stage of my career. 
And so I decided to try something a little bit different. Uh, and when I was in university, I did work part-time as a chef for a while. So uh, I, I had a little bit of experience working with food and beverage. Uh, and I had a tiny bit of experience working. And when I first went to university, I started studying chemical engineering. So I had a tiny bit of experience with that. Uh, and so, and I also really liked drinking beer. So it seemed like uh, seemed like an interesting opportunity to to try something completely different from English teaching, uh, and so that's that's the change that I made. So how did you get into making the beer? Yeah, I just uh, I cold emailed a couple of breweries here in Japan. Um, one of them just down the road from where I live, which is in West Tokyo, uh, and the other one in a completely different. Uh, they're called prefectures in Japan. I guess you would call them states. Uh, so there's a, a prefecture south of here called Shizuoka. It's about two or three hours on the train from here. Uh, and there's quite a, a large and well-established craft beer brewery there called Baird Brewing. Uh, and they responded to my email. Um, they wanted to make sure I wasn't completely mad. Uh, and they sent up some of their staff to meet me in one of their bars and have a little chat, try and talk me out of it but they weren't able to do that. Uh, and I went down there to live in Shizuoka and to work at, at the brewery there and to learn the trade for about a year and a half. Um, after I left there, because uh, my family was still up here in Tokyo, so I moved back to Tokyo and I worked at a, a brewery here in Tokyo close to where I live, which is actually a sake brewery, but they also make beer and I worked in, in the beer section. So I worked there for about six months. Uh, and then in 2019, I decided to to set up my own place, and that's Sakamichi Brewery. That's so cool. Um, that's really interesting too. They made it. so for listeners, if you don't know what sake is, it's a rice wine. Um, is that what people primarily drink in Japan? Is that like the favorite? Uh, it's certainly popular, but no, mm -hmm. beer is by far the the main alcoholic yeah so it sounds like different types of beer are getting more popular now um with your is there like a i mean in the states we definitely had kind of like a um i don't know if you would call it a trend or like a resurgence of like microbreweries my gastro pubs that kind of thing is that what's going on there or is it different or uh yeah that's that's very similar to what's going on here so there there've been there's been craft beer in japan for a while um since there was kind of a, a law change in the 2000s um but what was recently for what was the law prohibiting like um it, it wasn't really prohibiting anything it was uh it was to do with getting a license to run a brewery so they're one of the, the requirements to get the brewing license in Japan is the minimum output of beer that you have to produce. Uh, and at the moment, in order to get a beer license, you have to be able to produce 60,000 liters of beer a year, which is quite a lot of beer. Sounds like a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it would be more than you could reasonably drink by yourself. Um, but it used to be even more. Um, I can't remember the exact figure. Uh, right now, but I think in the, the late 90s and 2000s, that number was reduced to a level where you wouldn't have to have a massive facility in order to be able to produce that much beer. 
So craft breweries were able to, to start springing up. So I was looking at your website and you said that you were producing familiar beers and then beers that have never existed before. So that definitely caught my attention. Uh, what beers are you making and what beers are you making that have never existed before? I mean, I guess all the beers that we've made have never existed before technically well, because we're making them for the first time. Um, yeah, one uh, interesting uh, new beer that we made last year, um, we made this for Christmas. Um, in the UK, where I'm from, uh, at Christmas, there's a, a kind of sweet, a candy called a chocolate orange, uh, which is shaped like an orange. And it's got individual segments of chocolate that are flavored with kind of orange oil. Where are you from in the UK? Uh, I was born in a town called Birmingham, which is okay. in the in the Midlands. Uh, but I grew up in Scotland. Um, I now don't have either a Scottish or a Brummie accent, thanks to that. I don't. I, my cousins are they live in Glasgow, but uh, oh, oh really? Yeah. But, have you ever uh, been there? Oh uh, yeah, I was. I was there for. Um, I guess. I guess he would be my second cousin he's my mom's cousin but he's like 70 and uh he just got married <laughs> well, congratulations and, uh, the the house for an art lover it's a macintosh architecture guys mm. house or something mm. um but we used to get those for christmas all the time and i loved cracking them on the table but i thought they tasted gross <laughs> <laughs> okay they are a classic English Christmas uh, treat, though. And you're right, it's it kind of, it's the shape and size of a cricket ball, um, which is a, a reference I'm sure all of your American listeners will get immediately. Of course. Uh, and you got you got to whack it on the table to sort of separate the segments, and then you peel open the foil and you, you eat them. Um, anyway, that's a classic British uh, Christmas treat. Uh, and so we wanted to make a beer that was uh, similar to this somehow. Did so you get we made... On the table? <laughs> that you have to whack on the table <laughs> yeah I, I i can see doing that before before you're able to drink it you just slam the pint glass down um but yeah we um we we try to where we can use as many natural ingredients as possible uh, and there's a lot of really nice citrus fruit here in japan all year round there are all kinds of different citrus fruits that are produced uh, and so we made quite a chocolatey kind of porter a dark beer uh, and then put in a whole bunch of uh, orange zest into the boil when we were making it. And then we also, um, we dry zested it after the fermentation had finished. So the beer is kind of, it's finished fermenting or the yeast has eaten all the sugar. The beer is more or less finished and it's kind of cool in the tank. It's about 15 degrees. But then we get a, a separate tank next to the main fermentation tank and we pass the beer through it. And in that second tank, we put up a lot more orange zest and that picks up a lot of aroma and some interesting flavor as well. And of course you're speaking in Celsius, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, sorry, I'm gonna be speaking in, in metric the whole time. Um, the, the listeners, these Americans, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm slightly too young to remember uh, non-metric measurements in the UK. Although the UK were a bit strange, we still measure some things non-metrically. So distance is still in miles, beer still comes in pints and people are weighed in stones, but that's it. Yeah, the stones, like my, you know, my cousins, but 
speak in that, but I never remember what how many pounds that is. I think it's 14 pounds. I'm not actually sure. Yeah, and I just, you know, I always pictured them like being on like one of those those classic scales with stones on the other side. Yeah. You've got somebody on the other end just loading up the stones to yep. see how many of them you weigh. Yeah. Okay, that must be a, some doctor's visit. But it, it, it's a really uh, old-fashioned sounding measurement. And it, it, it yeah. sounds like a, a cubit or something. How many cubits tall are you? Yeah. Um, that's really cool. So the the brewery in Tokyo that you can go visit, you, is that that's where the beer is made and you can get a tour and there's a bar in there or there is a bar in there. Yes. So the most crucial step is drinking the beer and you can do that. Although actually from Monday, you can't do that for a little bit. We're having another uh, lockdown here in Tokyo. Um, so they're going to be banning the sale of draft beer right up until the Olympics start. Um, so but at the moment bottling it then, yeah, so we, we're still open for takeout sales. We have cans and, and bottles for sale, but we can't serve any beer um, from Monday. Uh, it's been kind of start-stop with this um, for the last few months here in Tokyo. That sucks. Yeah, it does, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it's important that we prioritize public health. Um, that's the most important thing, and the vaccine... Uh, program is starting to pick up steam a little bit here in Japan. Uh, both me and Dan, who is my partner at Sakamichi Brewing, uh, we've both have a, had our first shots um, and, and things are starting to, to speed up a bit. That's good. Do you, um, um, to like, because obviously that's a tremendous hit to your business if you can't be open. Um, are you distributing your beard? in like supermarkets or something like that at all? Or is it just strictly you have to go to the microbrewery to get it? Yeah, at the moment, the only way to get it is to come to our tap room, unfortunately. Um, we, we're not at the scale yet where we can get into uh, to retail outlets or, or even to start exporting our beer to America. But hopefully, you know, you know in the future, who knows what's going to come. Um, at the moment, we um, we don't have the the brewery in our own space, so it's we're what's called a, a phantom brewery. We go to other breweries and sort of rent their equipment to make our beer, and then bring the beer back to our tap room where we serve it. Um, but the plan is that this year, at some point, we will have our own brewery in in our own space. I didn't know you could do that. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Um, so the orange chocolate one sounds really good. Um, I think that was one of those flavors where like growing up, I didn't like that chocolate, but now I love orange and chocolate. It's really weird. And, um, I feel like the trifecta of that is, uh, the star, the anise with the orange and mm. that it's really good. Mm. Um, so do you like it was a lot of pilsners right so now you're doing lagers and stouts porters what other kind of beers besides the porter are you doing uh yeah we've never actually made a lager 
I guess there's so much lager in Japan that uh, there's no need for, for that from us. Um, so we mostly make IPA style beers. Um, the biggest difference between, I guess, a lager and an ale is the kind of yeast that you use. Right, lagers use a, a different kind of yeast, which has to be fermented at a lower temperature. Oh, um, so you know that. They take, they take longer to make because the yeast is less active because it's at a lower temperature. Um, and we, sorry. No, sorry, go ahead. Um, I always, like every time I ask somebody, probably because I'm not talking to a brewmaster, um, what makes IPA an IPA? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I guess the answer is marketing, um, because that's the most popular style these days. Uh, lots of places call almost all of their beers IPA something. Um, but traditionally, an IPA is brewed with an ale yeast, uh, and it's brewed quite strong, um, like over 5%, uh, and it would use a lot of hops as well to give it uh, a lot of bitterness uh, and a lot of hop flavor as well. So there's no like standard of it? There's no like it has to have X amount of hops or or because it always seemed like there was some folklore that it is because it was going bad when they were trying to get it back to England or on the ships or something. So they made IPA. So is it like a certain amount of alcohol content in the beer is going to make it not go bad as quick. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Um, that's the folklore, isn't it? That's the story that um, this beer was being shipped from the UK to India. Uh, and I do literally mean shipped. Um, everything was sent on boats back then. Uh, and because it's, it, it's in wooden casks, um, it wouldn't survive the long sea journey that well. Uh, and so what they tried to do is, yeah, as you say, to increase the amount of alcohol. Alcohol has a preservative quality to it. Uh, and also increase the amount of hops because hops are a natural sterilizing agent. And they also help the beer to, to keep longer and better. Uh, and so that's where the style supposedly comes from. I've read different things about that. I've read some people saying well, that's, that's not actually true. That's kind of a, an urban myth. Um, but yeah, that's that's certainly the most widely understood origin story for IPAs, India Pale Ales. Huh. What were you going to say before I cut you off? <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> it was probably something really important and interesting, but I don't remember what it was. Um, cool. <laughs> can I can I ask you a question? Yeah. Where in the U.S. are you at the moment? Right now, I'm in uh, good old Florida. <laughs> Florida? What's yeah. it like in Florida at the moment? Um, it's kind of like the Wild West. But uh, <laughs> uh, when it comes to, like, the COVID situation, uh, it's basically like, uh, you know, it's uh, that doesn't exist. <laughs> right. But uh, it, it depends. It, I mean, it depends on where you go. You see, maybe like forty percent of the people wearing masks, maybe. But um, you know, uh, I don't think they're planning any shutdowns or anything anytime soon. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, and then there's 
most of the news is focused on the collapse of that uh, apartment building by my right opinion. yeah so. that's terrible isn't it it, it's interesting about the masks. I've been wondering about this. Like um, in Japan, there's no rule saying that we all have to wear masks. But um, basically, as soon as this all started, we all just did start wearing masks. Uh, I guess it's kind of, it's a cultural thing in Japan anyway to wear masks. Um, so they they were freely available. You could just go to any grocery store and, and buy them. But it seems like there's been a lot more resistance in America to to the idea of putting masks on. Oh, yeah, it's just, uh, I mean, it's really just the polit people, um, especially like people that are like older than me that don't really like still rely on cable news to get their news, right? Um, they, they're very politically divided between the right and the left. And instead of masks being like a scientific issue it got it became this political issue um you know in america unfortunately <laughs> instead of doing um you know everything is like clickbait and uh like you know tribal like left right like it's just it's so annoying um because it really it doesn't let any voices be heard that are like uh, well, it's kind of a little bit of this and a little bit of that. You know, like if you wear a mask, but then like, you know, it, there's there's so much new research coming out about that kind of stuff where like they're saying, well, it's kind of like, you know, what's the, the viral load? And like, if you're in the room and everyone has a mask on, but like, you know, you have a mask on and it's got a little space and whatnot. If you're in that room for only like, you know, a few minutes or so, you're probably fine. But if you're going to be sitting in there for hours and hours and hours, and there's no ventilation and all that other crap, then, uh, you know, maybe not as effective, you know? So there's a huge, there's, and, but like people will take like every little tiny bit instead of like actually listening to the whole thing and taking, you know, listening to like the nuances of it, and like making a, a critical decision making. Thing, that it's just like you know I, I can't even I don't even watch the news anymore you know I mainly get my uh there's there's a very good YouTube channels nowadays um that are more like independent media a lot of them are like subscription based um where you you know they don't take money from places or they're not a newspaper that's owned by a giant corporation like you know, Amazon or whatever. So, um, you know, I encourage people to go seek out those new sources and, you know, make up your own mind. Or even if you listen to mainstream media, there's usually like a grain of salt that's true, you know, mm -hmm. but it's being skewed in one totally different direction to fit the narrative of whoever is paying for it, you know, unfortunately. Capitalism. <laughs> Um, with regards to masks, like, uh, I, I understand that viewpoint that says, you know, that they're, they're not 100% effective in preventing you from catching coronavirus, but they're not really supposed to be, right? The idea is that if enough people wear them, it will exactly. slow down the spread. Exactly. Uh, and, also, 
also we we kind of we have this understanding in the brewery like working in a brewery it can be a, a dangerous and hazardous space there are strong chemicals that we use there are kind of high pressure vessels there's steam uh, going around that's just very hot and at, at high pressure uh, and so we wear at times we do wear protective clothing like uh, goggles or steel-toed boots or gloves and that kind of thing but if you're in a situation where you're relying on that protective clothing to protect you, then something has gone wrong further up the stream, right? It shouldn't be necessary for that to protect you. You wear it to be safe just in case something bad does happen. But ideally, that problem should have been prevented several steps back. So if the chemicals are spraying everywhere in the room, your goggles are going to protect you. But those chemicals shouldn't be spraying everywhere in the room. That should have been prevented further back. Exactly. Um, not sure exactly what my point there was, but uh, you should wear a mask. Anyway, everyone here in Japan does. Yeah. And, um, you know, America has, like, a friend of mine lives in South Korea, and she's not, you know, she's, I'm, she's not poor, you know, and she's still having trouble getting vaccine. People in America are just not getting it because you know they don't believe in it you know? mm. um, which is kind of troubling but it's also understandable because you can't really trust the media anymore and you can't you know, I mean you don't know in a person like you're not sure who where to get the correct facts a lot of people you know mm. so they're like well a lot, a lot of people have the idea well I'll just wait. If you're not required to by your job, like I'll just wait a year and see if anyone dies, you know, or has some crazy side effects. But then you also have people that are like, you know, there's there were people in Florida that were uh, getting the vaccine and like bringing magnets with them to see if they could get the the chip that the government was like injecting in them, and it's just like you know, let's uh, figure out, like, where are you getting your information from? Like, let's, like, do a deeper dive, you know? And maybe, <laughs> maybe doing a deeper dive might not even be good, because then all of a sudden they'll think the earth is flat, but we'll see. <laughs> it's hard to know how to reach people like that, isn't it? Because once you have sort of made those kind of beliefs so core to your personality, then any kind of disagreement is you see that as an attack on yourself and you're going to become very defensive about it almost immediately. Yeah. And so, I feel like that is hopefully, hopefully, um, you know, I, I lost both my jobs, but I kind of figured this out before uh, the pandemic was <laughs> so many people, their identity, it was with their jobs, right. Or with their beliefs. So hopefully you know, a lot of people lost their jobs, maybe they'll stop identifying with, you know, their jobs and maybe say, hey, maybe I can just be a person that, you know, likes to do all different types of things. And, you know, but, um, you know, when people's core identity is in this tribe of, you know, flat earthers or, <laughs> or uh, you know, Democrats, Republicans, even, you know, religion or, then it, it becomes a problem because um, then you're not, 
you're arguing, you wind up arguing things that if you took yourself out of it or like you just changed, like if, for instance, like if a, if there was a club called the Round Earthers, right? You would be like, that person's, you know, that person's crazy, <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you're a flat earther. So um, it's just uh, to not be able to be like, oh, I changed my mind is like a terrible thing, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, I don't know if there is a good answer to that because everything seems to get subsumed into this big culture war, doesn't it? Uh, like like with the masks or like with the vaccine, everything has to, to be part of this ongoing culture war. And for what? It doesn't really, doesn't really benefit anyone. Is there something different in and how people live in Japan that kind of prevents the culture war or what? Um, so there has been some vaccine hesitancy here, um, but it, it's not really a, a partisan or a political issue. It's more that um, there was a scandal uh, in the 90s, I believe, where there was some vaccine that was given out by the government, but it turned out to be not completely safe. Uh, and Japanese, uh, the Japanese government tends to be very risk averse. So after that, they stopped pushing vaccines hard. They said, you know, that these children's ones, everybody needs to get those. But after that, it's really up to you. You can decide whether or not you want to get this because they want to avoid any kind of blame for making people get a vaccine that then turns out to be harmful. And so because of that, I think um, I read recently that for, for very well-established vaccines in Japan, there's a very high level of acceptance. But for new or less well-established vaccines, there can be quite a lot of hesitancy because there isn't any kind of government program to encourage people to take them or to, to talk about the benefits of taking vaccines. Well, I so think... there have been... Sorry. There have been quite a lot of stories in the media recently about people who say, you know, well, I'm just going to increase my immune system by eating healthy food, or I'm just going to wait 12 months to see if there are any side effects to this vaccine. I don't want to put anything unnatural into my body, um, which is a, a pretty self-centered way of looking at it. And I did also notice that the guy who was saying, you know, I'm going to increase my immune system by eating a lot of healthy food. Also owned a bagel shop that sold healthy food. So he wasn't a completely disinterested party uh, in that. But, you know, there are, there are some people who can't take the vaccine uh, or who are immunocompromised for whom this is a lot more serious. Uh, and if you eat healthily and if you are a healthy young, youngish person, you'll probably be fine if you get coronavirus but then you'll also probably spread it to a whole bunch of other people and some of them may not be fine. Yes, and also, um, I mean, it seems like, you know, Japan seems to have a less obese population than America. Um, so The general like, level of public health here is quite high, that's true. Yeah, and uh, is there, is the medicine like socialized medicine over there as well? Yes. Um, so everybody kind of by default goes into um, one of two national insurance programs. Uh, and 
uh, going to the doctor, it's not completely free at the point of delivery, um, like I'm used to in the UK. You have to pay 30% uh, out of your own pocket. Um, but there is a, a cap to that. There's a cap to how much you would ever have to pay. And then there are lots of uh, exceptions, like, of course, for children, all medical treatment is free. Uh, medicine is free for kids. I think if you're a student or if you're unemployed or if you have a very low income, then also that gets subsidized a lot as well. But it's it's an interesting example of sort of the cultural mismatch. Um, I work here with British people and with American people. And I remember sometimes you, you, know, you would talk to a, one of your coworkers and say, I've just been to the doctor and at the end I have to pay like $5 and the Americans say, I only had to pay $5. It's amazing. It's so cheap here. And the British people say, I had to pay $5. I can't believe it. I actually have to pay to go to the doctor. It's disgraceful. So there's a really interesting cultural mismatch there. Yeah, I mean, I was, um, you know, when I was working as a flight attendant, the also British people love talking about politics. <laughs> like, like uh, they... They love, you know, they, they have a, they love to debate. Like, I, I always loved uh, flying with, uh, like, especially, like, the Irish pilots <laughs> love debating, um, especially when Trump was running because they just, you know, they love to rag on you and stuff like that, which is, you know, it was all good fun. Um, but the they would talk about that constantly and also but then you had like guys from like the netherlands and scandinavia and stuff would they would complain about like how high their taxes were and i was like you know they're like oh in america like they're paying like 50 percent taxes in america they're paying you're paying like 25 30 percent taxes but the thing i was trying to explain to them is like yeah, sure, I'm paying income tax, but I'm also spending $200 a month on health insurance that I'm not, I'm not going to the doctor every month, you know, it would be way cheaper <laughs> for if everybody, you know, paid that through their taxes, I'm not going to, it's not going to be an extra, you know, $200 a month in taxes that's crazy it was it came out to like twelve dollars a month you know so um it's just a in interesting way to think and also going to the places in especially in scandinavia like you know the streets were cleaner the the public transportation was amazing you know like you really you got what you pay for whereas here a lot of things are you know, like nothing gets done because of this, uh, you know, this bipartisan gridlock, which is really like, if you really look at it, it's just the, the billionaires, it's like on both, both sides, it's like, oh, we're pretending we're in this fight. And then, but we're really just giving all this money to the corporations and, you know, it's, it should just be like America incorporated or something like that. It's ridiculous. Um, but anyway. <laughs> All that money's going somewhere, isn't it? And if you're not seeing the benefit of it, you've got to ask, you know, who, who's really benefiting from this system? Yeah, exactly. And, um, but they'll do, 
especially when you look at the media and everything like that, they're going to do everything they can to point the finger at, um, you know, class, class war, racism, um, you know, all these different things. They want you to fight about all that stuff. And not to say that it doesn't exist because a lot of that stuff, you know, it is a problem, but they would much rather you be looking at that than be looking, you know, at what they're doing and writing the laws and what they're passing and stuff like that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. The bosses would rather have us all at each other's throats all the time rather than uh, looking at who's, who's stealing all our stuff and it's them. Um. Which, you know, especially uh, union, unionization is something they're really fighting against, um, especially Amazon. Um, and now I just thought about it. Back to beer. Do, uh, do they have like uh, craftsman type unions over there in Japan like they do in America? Um, th there are no specific labor unions for craft brewers, no. Uh, I think uh, it's it's a difficult one. Uh, after the Second World War, obviously the Americans were in charge over here for a bit, and they wanted to make Japan a kind of bulwark against the the spread of communism. So, a lot of the way that labor laws are set up here, there are strong labor protections, of course, but there isn't a strong uh, independent labor movement. Well, I guess the labor force probably, because if you had to have X amount of output for your breweries, that kind of made it so you couldn't have any little guys compete against the bigger guys, right? That's true, yeah. And there's, there's a certain way of looking at the Japanese government that they kind of work hand in glove with the very large corporations, the, the Zaibatsu, um, who run the, the large, uh, a large proportion of the economy. And you kind of see an interchange between, we only have one political party really here who, who win every election. Uh, and th there are elections, there was one just last week, but the same people win every time. Uh, and do you see a lot of interchange between the people in that party and between uh, powerful and large business lobbying groups? Sounds like America. <laughs> having having said that, um, one positive about Japan is that it's relatively speaking uh, a fairly that that the income gap between the richest in society and the poorest in society isn't as wide here as it is in some other parts of the world, and so there is quite still quite a strong social contract. We understand that we will be provided for. We get our free healthcare and you know, a, a good education provided and it's relatively safe here. And there aren't a bunch of super rich, uh, mega wealthy people at the top kind of stealing all the pie from the rest of us. I not mean, yet, anyway. Not yet. <laughs> um, so, segue. <laughs> Uh, I was thinking about the beer and then, you know, thinking about having all these class things. Is there, um, is the food, like, are you having like a gastropub food side to what you're doing? 
to specifically what we're doing at Sakamichi Brewing. Yeah. Um, no, we don't do food at all. In fact, um, that was a, a decision we made when we were first setting up. Um, neither me nor Dan, my business partner, have any experience running a restaurant. And you were a chef. <laughs> I worked in a restaurant, but I think working in a restaurant, cooking food, and actually running a restaurant are two very, very different skill sets. Um, so I think they're also like in the town where we are, which is called Tachikawa, um, which is in the west of Tokyo. There's quite a, a vibrant nightlife scene here. There are a lot of good restaurants uh, and a lot of them do takeout as well. So we instead decided that customers can bring any food that they want into our tap room. Uh, mm. And there are a couple of reasons we chose to do that. The first was, yeah, we didn't want to run a restaurant like inventory management and keeping the, the kitchen clean and matching up to all the regulations and everything. It just wasn't anything we had experience with and it wasn't something we wanted to devote a lot of time to. And also we want our beer to be available in all of these local bars and restaurants around us. So if we're in direct competition with them as another restaurant, maybe that's going to be a different kind of relationship. But because we can say, look, we don't compete with you in this field. And you can, in fact, sell your food to our customers. Maybe it's easier for us then to uh, to turn around and say, and by the way, would you like to buy some of our beer to to sell in your restaurant? Is there a way, like if I went to your, to your bar, could I, and I was like, oh man, I'm hungry. Could I like get it delivered? Absolutely. Yeah. We've had people do that in the past. Um, you, can, you can order McDonald's to be delivered here in Japan. I don't know if that's a thing in America, but like they, they ride around on mopeds. And so you can, uh, you can order some McDonald's, you can order a pizza. Um, there are actually quite a lot of local restaurants who give us like a, a takeaway menu with the phone number written on it. And you can, as a customer, you can just call them and they will walk the food over to our tap room and deliver it to your table if, uh, if that's what you want. That's perfect. Yeah, supporting small local business and also getting to eat some nice food as well. And also, you don't have to run a restaurant, which makes it easy. <laughs> yes, easier. Although, as I mentioned earlier, like we're having uh, another no alcohol lockdown um, from Monday. And so the only thing we do is sell alcohol. So a lot of other restaurants, they're saying, okay, well, we'll stay open. We'll serve food and soft drinks and that's fine we can stay open like that but because we only sell alcohol that basically shuts our business down can you do delivery like uh the food there uh no so there is quite a lot of regulation in japan around uh alcohol um it's a bit of a, a bureaucratic nightmare actually just filling in all the different kind of forms and complying with all these different regulations and you need lots of different licenses to sell alcohol in different ways. So for example, we have two separate licenses in our space. One is to serve draft beer and that's licensed by the local health office. And then a wholly separate license, which is to sell cans and bottles of beer, packaged beer. Uh, and that's licensed by the, the tax office. And then if we wanted to deliver locally, that would be an entirely different license we are currently allowed to sell online, but only to customers inside of Tokyo. That's, that's a bit of a weird one. So in order to sell to customers outside of Tokyo, 
we would need a, another wholly different license. And of course, all of these generate their own enormous amounts of paperwork and they take time and money to, to get. Uh, in fact, the, the takeout sales license, the one for the cans and bottles was so complicated to get that we actually had to hire a lawyer to do it for us. Yeah, and a lot of that too, like, I mean, especially here, um, you want to get a license or like a permit to build something. A lot of it, especially like, I grew up in New Jersey and every town had a specific number of liquor licenses that they could have. Right. And it's all like, it's either, it's who you know and how much you can pay, you know? And uh, that sucks because you could have the best, um, you know, you could have the best brewery in Japan, but uh, if, you know, the guy doesn't like you or needs to give you that license to his cousin, like you're screwed. Right. I don't think there is any kind of limits to the number of licenses that there are here in Japan. And thankfully, Japanese bureaucracy is fairly clear of any kind of corruption. Like as long as you're willing to jump through all the hoops and to provide all the paperwork that they want, the process will move forward. It will move forward very slowly and it will cost a lot of money to get all the, the licenses, but it will move forward. Uh, and that's kind of that's one of the positive things that we found to be a little bit surprising. We thought that because we are both not Japanese, it might be difficult to interact with Japanese bureaucracy. They might be hesitant to give us the licenses or to, to allow us to even found a company. But what we found is that actually isn't the case. Like as long as the, the biggest problem is just a language barrier. Of course, all the forms that we're filling in, all the paperwork we're having to produce is written in Japanese. And speaking Japanese and writing Japanese are two very, very different skills. Um, so it takes me extra time because I have to, you know, go through all of these forms much more slowly than a native Japanese speaker would in order to be able to first understand them and then fill them in correctly. I don't know. That seems like one of those things I'd call in the wife for. <laughs> I know, did I spell this right? My boyfriend is, uh, you know, he speaks fluent Spanish. He's, uh, his parents are from the Dominican Republic. So anytime I got to do anything with that, like, Hey babe, can, like one time our, our neighbors, they're from Cuba so, and the guy only speaks Spanish and he knocked on my door. He was trying to, he was trying to actually ask me a question about the lights I have set up for making the cooking videos and stuff like that. And I was just like, hold on. And I called him and I was like, here, <laughs> because I don't know, you know, imagine writing it, especially Japanese with all the characters. You know, you mess up a apostrophe, you know, you might be saying something inappropriate. <laughs> right. You could be saying completely the wrong thing. Yeah. I think we, we found, though, that most Japanese bureaucrats and, you know, bank officials and everything have been quite understanding with us. And I think maybe it's just it's unusual and interesting for them to see two non-Japanese people trying to navigate this space. So as long as we are trying our best and we are, you know, producing the, the paperwork that they want us to produce. Um, we haven't really felt any resistance from Japanese bureaucracy because of our non japanese not yet. Do you, um, is your customer base um, mostly Japanese or is there, is there like a big expat community that you're a part of? Uh, it's mostly Japanese. Yeah. So we, um, 
we're quite active on on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and everything. If people want to search Sakamichi Brewing, I'm sure they can find us on all those platforms. And we try and put up posts every day, you know, nice pictures of the beer or different things that we're doing. And try and do those in Japanese for the most part, because in Tachikawa, most of the people who live here are Japanese. So we need to market to them. But um, just up the road from us, there is actually an American Air Force base. Uh, and there is, of course, an expat community here in Tokyo, a fairly sizable expat. I don't know, expat only seems to be applied to white people. So I'm just going to say immigrants. <laughs> there are people, English-speaking people here. In... I didn't know that. I just thought it meant like people from one country that didn't, you know, they, they live in a different country. Not... That is what it means, but it tends to be very selectively applied, I think, only to white English-speaking uh, people. So the, the word here in Japan is foreigner, but I don't use that word. I would say non-Japanese. There's a sizable non-Japanese English-speaking community here in Tokyo. Uh, and those people do tend to be interested in craft beer. So the fact that we are bilingual, that we can speak both English and Japanese, really helps us to, to reach out to those two communities as well. There's the American military community up the street yeah. from us. No, they Both like beer. They do <laughs> like beer. That's true. Most of them don't speak Japanese as well. Uh, and then there's the, the sizable um, immigrant community, English speaking immigrant community here in Tokyo. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's, it's a big help. I think um, it would be easy to only focus on the drawbacks of the fact that we're not Japanese. And of course there is discrimination here in Japan. Uh, just recently there was a really terrible story about some lady who got harassed by a guy in the park uh, he claimed that her daughter had pushed his son. So he called the police uh, and they showed up. And rather than uh, saying to the guy, why are you calling us? This is not a police matter. They took this uh, this woman. So she was not Japanese. Uh, and I think she was a Muslim as well, which is kind of relevant to the story. They took her back to the police station and questioned her for three hours and also questioned her three-year-old daughter separately for three hours. It's hard to see what the police were really expecting to, to gain from that other than just kind of pressurizing them into a, a confession of some kind. Confession of what? I don't know. So, of course, there is discrimination here, of course. But we don't want to just focus on that. I think there is also, there is an interest. Like when we were first making the space, we did a lot of the construction work by ourselves. So we didn't have any money. So we were in our tap room and we were, Know, painting the walls and building the furniture and doing everything and people walking past would look in and they would see two white guys working in construction here in japan and that was quite interesting and unusual so that helped to build a bit of a, a buzz even before we had opened people were curious about what was going on and what was being done there we uh, built the furniture we did we built the furniture it costs we, we were looking around even for secondhand bar stools it cost about a uh, hundred dollars a stool and we figured out that we could make them for a lot less than that. So we just made them. $100 a stool. That is expensive. There's yeah. No, there's no Ikea in Japan? <laughs> well, there is, but we didn't want the bar stools collapsing. A <laughs> <laughs> people were sitting on them. Please don't sue me, Ikea. That was just a joke. I'm exaggerating for humorous effect. Um, but yeah, we, we wanted to, uh, to have something a little bit unique. Uh, and so making the furniture ourselves, you know, it puts our own stamp on, on the space. Does, 
I don't speak Japanese. So does Sakamichi mean anything uh, important to you? <laughs> Uh, yeah, it means a uh, steep road or mountain road. Um, and that's the logo as well, right? We've got the mountain and we've got the, the road underneath. Um, and the reason for that is that me and Dan, the co-founder of the business, we originally met and became friends through cycle touring. Um, we enjoyed just putting like a tent and our stuff on the back of a bicycle and riding around Japan, different places in Japan. I will say one of the really great things about Japan is that you are never more than half a kilometer away from a flushing toilet, no matter where you are. So yeah. big thumbs up, big thumbs up to you, cycle touring in Japan. Um, and so whenever we were out on these tours, it would usually be Dan who kind of planned the route, put it into our little GPS computers and everything. And every time without fail, we would find that we would have to ride up a staircase or one time quite memorably along the top of a very thin sea wall, you know, with a, a 60 foot drop on the other side. And the joke every time was, oh, this is a very interesting road that you've chosen for us. What an interesting road we're, we're finding here. And so when we were trying to think of a, a name for the business, we wanted it to be Japanese. We wanted something that was easy for Japanese people to say. Uh, and that phrase, interesting road, kept coming up. And it, it wasn't possible to translate it exactly into Japanese, but we thought that Sakamichi had quite a nice ring to it and it sounds, you know, it sounds good <laughs> as well. It's easy for both uh, Japanese speakers and English speakers to say as well. Uh, and yeah, that, that's why we're called Sakamichi Brewing. Um, it does mean steep road. So sometimes we get customers showing up at our tap room, which is built on a completely flat road. <laughs> And they say, I don't understand why you're called Sakamichi. It's not steep here at all. I was expecting you to be on the side of a mountain. But that's yeah, quite just a, nice. a few more drinks, you'll change your mind. <laughs> yeah, you'll be crawling back to the station. But it's a, it's a nice in to sort of explain the, the story of how Dan and I met whenever people ask about that. So is Dan, uh, was he originally a brewmaster or how did he get into the beer business um so dan's uh from america he's from ohio and um a few years ago he uh i think he felt like he was a bit of a rut so he decided to take a bit of a break to do something a bit different and he cycled from uh i'm trying to get this right i think he cycled from washington state all the way down to santiago chile wow. and it took him two years to do that uh, I think he drank a lot of beer along the way as well. Um, and so after having finished that trip, he came back to Japan and he was kind of thinking, you know, how do you re-enter society after doing something like that? You can't just go back and work in an office yeah. after you've been sleeping in a tent for two years. And so he was kind of trying to think what his next move would be. Uh, and you know, we, we met up, we'd been friends for quite some time. So we met up to, to, to see what he was up to and to welcome it back to Japan. And that was at the same time that I was kind of planning to move away from Ishikawa Shuzo to, to go independent and to set up my own place. And I was thinking that it would be a good idea to, to do that with a partner. And Dan was also interested in doing something a little bit different. So that's how we, we got together on this. Um, he doesn't have any brewing background though. Um, although he has plenty of drinking background. 
you know, sometimes you gotta have a case tester, right? <laughs> it's, it's absolutely the most important step. You know, we can make whatever beer we want and it can be the best beer in the world, but at the end of the day, somebody has to drink the stuff. That's true. Yeah, customers sometimes think I'm joking when I say, no, you have the most important job in the brewery, but it's true. What would be the point in making this beer if nobody was there to drink it in the end? That's true. So are there any um, beers that you that are interesting that you're working on right now? We recently made uh, something called a cold IPA, um, which is, a, like I said, IPA is mostly marketing these days. And they're always trying to think of, uh, of new kinds of IPA. Um, so recently there was a thing called a mountain IPA. Um, in America, you have your East Coast tradition of IPAs, which are kind of juicy and hazy, not that bitter. And then you have your West Coast tradition of IPAs, which are quite dry and very bitter and very hoppy. And so the mountain IPA is kind of a mix between the two. So I guess the mountains are in the middle. So it's juicy and fruity, but also bitter and dry. That's a mountain IPA. Uh, and another new one that has been developed is something called a cold IPA, which is fermented at a lower temperature than ales usually are to give it uh, a much cleaner kind of finish, almost like a lager, but with a lot of uh, hops in it as well. So we brewed uh, something called Headwind IPA together with a few other breweries who are friends of ours here in Tokyo. And what's, so that's lower and slower. Why are you calling it headwind? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. We didn't actually come up with that name. We, as I said, this was a collaboration between uh, three breweries uh, and our good friends at Shiokaze. The brewmaster there is another American guy. He's from Michigan, a guy called Chris Poole. He is the one who came up with the name. And both me and Dan, as cyclists, when we had headwinds, we, we had very negative connections with that. But uh, he wanted to, I think he initially wanted to call it cold headwind to sort of uh, to show the, the cold brewed nature of this beer. We managed to talk him out of that. That was a bit too negative. That's a um, yeah. Headwind, cause, I mean, I get it because it's slower. Hmm. But you're going, you're going slower and lower. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're riding a bicycle into a headwind, you got to kind of crouch down over the handlebars. So if you should make a, a fast beer called Tailwind. <laughs> there, there you go. That's a good idea. I wonder how we could do that. Um, so when you ferment uh, beer, some of the key considerations are what temperature do you ferment it at? So as I said, lagers tend to be fermented at a lower temperature because that's what the yeast likes. And if it's all about keeping the yeast happy, the yeast is the one doing all the work in the brewery. Um, so they tend to take longer to make, but it is possible um, if you pressurize the fermentation tank quite a bit to ferment it at a higher temperature and therefore finish the beer faster. So that maybe that's a recipe idea there for your name. We're making it in collaboration here. What uh how would that making it faster change the flavor profile? I think what you're trying to do here is to not change the flavor profile. So the big problem with lagers is that they take so long to make because it, it, the yeast moves so slowly. So you want to be able to make it faster to be able to use that tank for something else to make a, a new beer. But 
you can't increase the temperature because then the yeast would be unhappy and it would produce off flavors. But if you increase the temperature, but also increase the pressure, that pressure kind of, how to describe this, it, it, the yeast doesn't like the pressure either. So that slows it down enough that you are able to, to ferment at that higher temperature. And then you can, you can make another delicious beer sooner rather than later. I wonder what would happen. <laughs> now you got me thinking. Uh, if you fermented at a lower pressure. At a, at a negative pressure, like in a vacuum. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> when, the, uh, when the yeast is uh, eating all the sugar, creating the alcohol, it also produces carbon dioxide. Um, and usually we have either some kind of valve to release that carbon dioxide from the tank as it's produced. It's called a spunding valve and you kind of set it to the pressure that you want. And then anything above that pressure will be released from the tank. Or more simply, you just have a kind of a plastic hose going into a bucket of sanitizer. Um, and that lets all the, the pressure out of the tank. So typically that, that's the more common way of doing it. And typically it is, beer is fermented at, you know, normal temperature, uh, normal pressure. There is no pressure in the tank when you're fermenting it. Well, there's a equilibrium, like there's, that's right. so to, it would be very hard to make a negative pressure is what you're saying? Yeah, you'd have to have some kind of pump sucking out all of this carbon dioxide. Um, also, uh, fermentation tanks are built to withstand a lot of positive pressure. Yeah. You can take them up to a high positive pressure, but they are not built to withstand negative pressure. Uh, it's something that can happen, actually, if, say, you're cleaning the tank with really hot water, but you've closed all of the valves, like there's no way for the pressure to, to equalize, you can actually crush that tank as that, that hot water cools and contracts. It will crush the tank like a Coke can. It's quite amazing to see. You can find pictures of that on the internet. And that's absolutely not something you want to happen because that tank is then destroyed and you have to buy a new one, which is expensive. Um, so some tanks have special kind of negative pressure release valves on the top. Um, but yeah, going back to the PPE discussion before, that's kind of a measure of last resort. That's to make sure that you don't crush your tank because what they're doing is sucking in a whole lot of air from the room and that air will not be sanitary. It will have lots of oxygen in it, and lots of other things that you don't want to get into your, your beer tank. Hmm. So maybe anyway, this is a negative pressure idea for a minute. <laughs> it, it, it's an interesting challenge. Yeah, you'd have to have a very different kind of equipment setup. Um, do you know who Brewdog are? That sounds familiar. They're a brewery from Scotland. You might have had some when you were in Glasgow. Um, they're quite a big international brand now, but one of the things they do is kind of crazy beers to, to get a lot of publicity. And I remember them saying that they had brewed a beer at the bottom of the ocean or sent some beer into space to make it or something. So perhaps if you were making the beer in space, it might be easier to, <laughs> to brew it at a, a negative pressure. I mean, all you have to do is go into space. It's easy, simple. Well, I mean, actually, maybe all you have to do is uh, 
because even just changing the altitude, you know, like at the top of a mountain. Yeah, there you go. Would be different. I guess uh, as you lower the pressure, also the um, the boiling point also lowers. Yeah. So you might be you might be evaporating all of your beer in the tank, and you're left just with a, a sticky residue, which would be less than optimal. Um, when we actually there is there is a, a case where we do use negative pressures in the brewery, and that's when we boil the wort prior to to cooling it and fermenting it. So when when we make beer, basically we get a whole bunch of grain and we crush it, mix it with hot water. And that sweet liquid that we extract is called wort. And we boil that to stabilize it and to add hops and, and things to give it flavor. And when you're boiling it, one of the things you want to do is to kind of drive off some of the undesirable chemicals that have been produced. Uh, and so in order to, <clears throat> to encourage that evaporation, some brew kettles do have a negative pressure in them that would increase the evaporation rate and so you can boil for less time or boil less vigorously but get more evaporation so that's another question i wanted to ask you um what grains are you using and what where are you sourcing them so in japan the majority of the grain that is used uh, for craft beer brewing comes from europe um, either from the uk uh, from France or from Germany. Um, those are the three main suppliers. Um, I think that for reasons beyond our control, we're probably going to be using less British malt uh, from now on, now that Brexit has happened. So there'll be more barriers between uh, the UK and Japan, and it will be harder to export and more expensive as well. So we will tend to use German and French grain instead. Um, so malt is a byproduct of beer making, right? Um, malt generally just means malted grains. So it's usually barley and we, uh, malting means you allow it to get wet and then you dry it out again. Um, so the getting it wet means it starts to, to sprout and there are certain enzymatic changes that happen within the grain. Uh, and then later on, you can change all the starch that's in there into sugar using those enzymes. So when we say malt, usually we're referring to malted barley, but things like wheat and oats are also used in beer making sometimes. And sometimes those are also malted. So do you, because when I was in, um, when I was making breads and stuff, working in some bakeries, they would get their malt from some breweries. Right. So is that, how is that taken out from the beer? Like why, why aren't you using all of it? <laughs> I guess is the question. Yeah, it's a good question. So I guess that would probably be something called spent malt. Um, so after we mix the malt with uh, the hot water, the enzymes in the malt break down all the starch into sugar and then we extract all of that sugar, or almost all of that sugar from the malt. And we're left with a lot of kind of empty husks of grain because all of the, the starch and sugar has been taken out of them, but they're still there and we have to, to dispose of them in some way. So getting rid of the spent malt 
is something that a lot of breweries invest a lot of time and money into. What do you do with all of that kind of wet husk stuff? Uh, and one option is to dry it and use it in food applications. So it could be for bakeries. Sometimes it's used for animal feed. Um, it can also be used as a fertilizer. It can kind of be processed into a, a natural fertilizer. Uh, and actually at the moment, we are taking part in a, a project here in West Tokyo together with a bunch of other local breweries to kind of decide what are we going to do with all of this spent malt? It's a real shame to just throw it away, which is what we have to do at the moment. So is there some application? Is there something that we can do with this that is more sustainable, kinder to the environment? And we're, we're working with a, a local agricultural university to figure out a way that we can collect and treat and use this spent malt. So that is that always in the form of the powder? Because the stuff I was using in the bakery, it was almost like a molasses. It was a liquid. Okay, that's interesting. So it was it was kind of a a, a thick, sweet liquid. Yeah. All right. So that was probably um, the the hot, sweet liquid that was extracted from the from the beer, the wort. And then if you kind of boil that down and really condense it, you can get that kind of uh, product. So I wonder if yeah, the, the brewery was doing that somehow. Um, the spent malt is usually, they're, they're still grains. They look like grains uh, of, of barley or of wheat or of oats, but they're, they're empty, basically. There's nothing left in them. It's a lot of fiber. <laughs> Yes, there is a lot of fiber. So it's quite good for, for using in baking. So that's why I thought that's what you were talking about. You can use it in baking because it adds a bit of, uh, yeah, a bit of fiber yeah, and a bit of texture flavor. to the bread. Yeah, good flavor. Yeah, I think I, I always thought, um, like I just assumed because I'd worked with this liquid malt that the powdered version was a dried out version of the liquid and not the ground up husks of where that liquid came from. So that's interesting. Learn something new. <laughs> you, you can get malt extract as well, which is a way of brewing beer. And that's where somebody else has taken the hot, sweet liquid and processed it for you. And you get kind of just a big can of really sticky molasses-like stuff. And that is a really condensed version of the wort. And then you can mix that with water to reconstitute it into, into wort. And you can get powdered versions of that as well. It's called malt extract. And that's where you'd make the beer out of them? Uh, you can do that. Most craft breweries don't do it that way. We work from the whole grains ourselves. But um, home brewers do occasionally work like that. So if you're making beer in your kitchen at home and you don't have space to process a whole bunch of grains, then you can buy that malt extract uh, and make the beer that way. Maybe that's what we were baking with. That could be it. There you go. There we go. The mystery is solved. Do you, I mean, growing up, I loved, I don't know if you had it over there, but it was Ovaltine. It was a chocolate malt powder. Yeah, yeah I'm familiar with Ovaltine. It's delicious. <laughs> you can make that with the, uh, the powdered, the spent malt. I guess. Yeah, so I think, 
Ovaltine is made from malted grains of some kind, right? So I'm not sure if it's exactly the same kind of grains, but yeah, they would be malted in the same way that the grain we use to make beer is malted. I think it would be really cool. I mean, I'm going to make a, uh, like, you know, make ice cream with that. Or um, my boyfriend loves, um, it's a Latin American soda. It's a Malta. Is, okay. And it's a soda. I I don't like it at all. <laughs> and literally, it tastes like, you know, it tastes like chocolate malt without the chocolate. So, like, <laughs> but a lot of, uh, it's super popular. So maybe uh, somebody wants to start a soda company over there. <laughs> Growing up and watching American TV shows and movies, that was one of the classic American settings that we, we imagined that all Americans spent time in, the malt shop right that's where you go oh the ice cream shop yeah then you, you mean, get a, a malted milk yeah there was a you know i was a kid in the you know 90s early 2000s so um they were kind of like throwback like novelty shops i guess that were like 50s themed and stuff and you could go in and to the ice cream parlor that was cool there's there's still a couple of those around but uh, I think it's dying out, unfortunately. For, you know, both fortunately and unfortunately. <laughs> but I used to go, um, it, it wasn't like a canny or like, it wasn't like that tacky, like 50s poodle skirt themed one, you know? Um, we used to go to this place called Holston's all the time. Um, and it was actually the final in the, it was the place of the final scene in the Sopranos. <laughs> oh, wow. So, uh, you know, and now like, if you go back there, they have like a plaque on the booth where like everybody sat and stuff and you could sit in the booth that <laughs> was in the Sopranos. It's pretty cool. <laughs> but, That's a very New Jersey experience. I feel like. So New Jersey. <laughs> but, uh, but it's fun. The ice cream is good too. I really like. Growing up and, and watching Happy Days, that seemed to be where the Fonz spent a lot of his time down at the malt shop. Hey. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yep. We watched that. That was a show. <laughs> it was a show, but uh, yeah, it was cool. I have another question, but I can't remember what it is. Can I? Can I ask you a question? Sure. Um, it's not often I get to talk to somebody who's as good at cooking as you are. Um, so I'd like to pick your brain a little bit um, sure. for kind of to help the environment. I've heard that one of the biggest things we can do is try and switch to a meatless diet, right? Um, not, not all the time. I still enjoy eating meat sometimes, but I'm trying to every now and again, at least once a week, cook a meatless dinner. Can you recommend any particularly good meatless dinners? I mean, I think the number one choice of everyone around the world is going to be pizza. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's a good choice. Uh, are you rethinking? Well, number one, I have, I would argue against that ideology of uh, not eating any meat. I think eating less meat, yes. Not eating any meat, I, I don't really agree. 
And I also, uh, that, you know, that brings up the question about sustainability, right? So, um, and because it, it drives me a little bit very crazy because talk about, um, you know, echo chambers and uh, especially like you, you know, you have the, in America, you have the right and the left, you have like all these kind of um, food trends that become very like cult-like and religious um, and like these diets that like, you know, keto or veganism is the biggest one, right? That is pushing this narrative of no meat, right? Ever. <laughs> you don't need meat. And I don't think that that is true. Um, you know, they'll argue, I'll tell you a quick story. <laughs> I won't say any names, but uh, so, so being a chef, and then going into being a flight attendant. Um, one of the things in the, as a chef that you have to learn is, uh, they call it HACCP here. I'm sure there's something similar everywhere, but uh, it refers to hazards and critical control points, right? And a huge focus of this is the temperature danger zone, as we call it. Um, and it's more fun if you say it like that, but <laughs> it is, uh, between they they'll change it every they'll, they always change it it'll be 41 to 141 or 40 to 140 depending on like the edition of the book you got for the test you have to take for sanitation so they can you know continue to make money but um if food is in that range you have to uh keep it you know you can only keep it out for a certain amount of hours, right? Before you're like, all right, it's, you know, it's at this mark of no return, which is usually, it's the six hour mark really. Um, and you, you gotta throw it out. You can't serve it. Um, I think it's the, you, you have to check it. Um, it depends on what it is, but you have to check it constantly, you know, have your thermometers in there. Um, but if at four hours you can take what they call corrective action where you could cool it down and reheat it later, but at the six hour mark, throw it out. So as a flight attendant, when you work in the front of the plane, you're responsible um, for the crew meals for the pilots, right? And one of the most, a few of the most important things for the pilots, they're not allowed to eat the same thing, obviously, because if you have a chicken and it's got something wrong with it and all the pilots eat it, everyone's going to be trying to go to the bathroom instead of flying the plane, you know? Um, so everyone has to eat something different. Um, and you want to make sure that it's safe for them to eat. You know, that's your responsibility. So when I came down from break, I would do very long flights. So this flight was like 10 or 12 hours or something. Um, I knew all the food in the, the ovens that they have, they have like basically industrial steamers had been out too long, not just for the pilots, but for the passengers too, because that's when we had heated everything up. So I threw it out. So the, uh, the first officer decided, uh, was a miserable guy, miserable. Um, I think because he was vegan and he was hungry all the time, <laughs> but I'm sure he would argue. 
So um, before this, I had already started a debate with him because he was trying to tell me that like we could get all our B12 from algae and we don't have to eat meat, which is not true. And also that would cause another imbalance that would not be great for the earth either. So, um, you know, he got so mad. Um, when I threw out his meal, because I didn't know that it was in there and it was specially ordered vegan for him. Um, he came out, so he got in this argument with me about, you know, veganism and all that other stuff. Uh, and then went back in the cockpit and we were doing the service and we hear the announcement for the plane landing and we're like, what the, you know? So he came out, was so enraged <laughs> about his ideology and me not agreeing with him. He forgot to tell me that we're landing early. <laughs> and uh, it was quite a scramble and we had to like throw everything, you know, lock everything up really quick and, uh, you know, make sure everyone had their seatbelt on and land the plane. But it's just, you know, to be so blinded by your ide ideology that you're not even doing your job is like ridiculous. Um, mm. But that said, there's so, all of the studies and the common studies people, or the studies and the documentaries, right? Because everybody has Netflix now. So they're watching what the health, they're watching all these things that like, if they present it in a fun and entertaining way where you believe it's true, right? But if you go, you gotta go and look at their sources. If you're gonna change something in your life, like if you're gonna change your entire way of living, like go look at the sources of the people that you're getting this information from, you know? And a lot of these studies, especially when it comes to veganism, they're comparing diets to, you know, a normal diet, which is not a healthy diet. If you're comparing it to someone who eats, you know, McDonald's and uh, fast food every day, of course, they're going to lose weight if they go from eating everything deep fried to eating salads, like, <laughs> duh, <laughs> you know, but they don't look into, and they'll give you all this kind of like, like outrage uh, like videos that are just supposed to make you outraged, like, you know, slaughterhouses of like pigs and stuff like that. Oh, the cute pigs. Oh, look, they're, you know, electrocuting them to death or whatever. But they're not showing the benefits of regenerative farming, right? They're not comparing a diet of someone who's only eating, you know, pasture-raised, um, you know, free-range chickens to veganism or like there were there was one study that had compared veganism vegetarianism um, the mediterranean diet and some other diet and the mediterranean diet was like you know it was you can compare it um it was definitely healthier than a vegan diet but it was also um kind of like head-to-head -head with a vegetarian who was eating a lot of eggs and fish. And I'm like, that's almost the same diet if you think about it. Um, so I just encourage people to, especially in America, um, you vote with your dollar. So if you're gonna not eat meat before you do that, why don't you see, you know, why don't you do a deeper dive? Go look into these sustainable ways of farming and they're not just farming animals they're farming plants right so if you do decide to be a vegan and then like you go like even these goya beans back here i'm sure i you know a lot of rabbits died in the process of 
you know, getting those beans or, you know, snakes or whatever, whatever was in that field when the turbines came to harvest all those beans, you know, they don't, you're not thinking about that either. So I, I'm going to be done with my rant now. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not a vegan. I do still eat meat. My, my thinking was just that we should probably eat less meat. I think a lot of people, especially in the West, just eat too much meat. Well, I, I also, know. the people in the West, they just eat too much, period. Right, yes. You know? Like, maybe stop gorging yourself, too. Or maybe, you know, that then you come in the other end of the spectrum, too, is uh, make better food cheaper. Because the people that have to eat these cheap they're, you know, all, a lot. Most people that are super obese are also poor, because they can't. They can only afford like you know the dollar menu, and that is, you know, not a lot of vitamins. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's fats, sugars, starches, things that you want to make make you eat more of it, and it's it's unhealthy, but it's cheap to produce, and it's going to fill you up more than a salad if you have to work two or three jobs that day you know That's capitalism important. strikes again um yeah i mean if, if you are working all hours um of the day uh, and then coming home absolutely exhausted um because there is no labor movement then you you're just gonna default to whatever's easiest and you, you don't have time to or the energy to prepare a healthy vegetarian or low meat meal for yourself. You don't have the time or the energy. And I can completely understand that. Another meat, if, if you're doing meatless, if we're doing uh, one of my favorite, um, just, I mean, I eat it all the time. I guess you could call it a breakfast, but like frittatas, like those eggs, those are my favorite. Especially if you can get really good eggs you know, like farm fresh eggs, like, you know, Delicious. how to. Mm. That's, uh, that's one of the application for spent malt at uh, Ishikawa Shuzo, the brewery I worked at before. We uh, pressed and dried our malt, our spent malt, and gave it to a local chicken farm, and they fed it to the chickens. And then once a month, they would show up with a massive basket of eggs for us. And those were, those were some good eggs. I wonder how that would change the uh, the flavor of the eggs too. Mm. They're eating a quite a rich diet with mm. all of this uh, sugar and malt. Awesome. Were they like bright orange yolks and everything? Yeah, yeah, they were. They were really healthy, really healthy looking chickens. In uh, Japan, do they? Because in America, you have to refrigerate your eggs because, like, they wash off the coating. Do they do that in Japan? It depends. Uh, I, I don't think it's required by law to wash your eggs. So coming from Britain, where eggs are not washed, I would never put them in the fridge. The eggs just live on the side, right? And I couldn't I couldn't understand why my wife was always so insistent about putting the eggs in the fridge. We disagree about it a lot. But I think it depends on the eggs that you buy. Some of them are washed, and some of them are not. We had chickens when I was growing up, and those eggs would always just be stored on the side because they're, they're, they're not washed, right? So they're still, they're still fine. You don't have to refrigerate those ones. 
That was weird when I, the first time I went to like an overseas grocery store, I was like, we got we can't buy anything here. They know they're not even refrigerating their eggs. <laughs> I learned about, you know, the American egg industry. <laughs> Speaking of uh, deep frying everything, when you were in Glasgow, did you enjoy a deep fried Mars bar? No. No, that's a Scottish delicacy, um, especially in Glasgow and Edinburgh. They're famous for, for deep frying just about everything. Um, when I was at university in Edinburgh, the local uh, fish and chip shop would do something called a half pizza supper. Supper in Scotland just means with chips, uh, potato fries, right? Uh, and what it was was a, a supermarket frozen cheese and tomato pizza that was folded in half battered and deep fried and then served with thick cut french fries so diets like that you can kind of see why some parts of glasgow have a lower life expectancy than baghdad but uh deep fried pizza is just a cal like if you fold the pizza in half it's just a calzone think about it True. yeah i guess it was a deep fried they should have called it a, a calzone supper calzone supper but yeah so that's, I'm sure it was cheap, you know? Yeah, it was, yeah. Uh, and that, that's exactly the point that you were making, isn't it? If people don't have a lot of time or a lot of money, they will default to you know, what is cheap and readily available. Uh, and that tends to be heavily processed and very unhealthy food. Um, we had a lot. I don't know if it was just like my cousins. Like, my cousins are... I think it's just also part of being Scottish. <laughs> they love to laugh. Like they love playing jokes on people. Like they love, <laughs> they just, they're some of the funniest people I know, especially uh, my cousin that got married, <laughs> Herbert. <laughs> so I remember, um, and in a, like a, like a very smart way too. Like the humor is very smart and it's a, uh, like, I remember going over there as a kid and being like, why you talk funny? And he'd be like, no, you have an accent. I don't have an accent. You talk funny. And I like, you know, I didn't get it, but he thought it was so funny. That I didn't get it, you know. Um, but they just were, they kept ordering things with blood sausage on everything. And I thought, is he playing a joke on me? Or... <laughs> Or is it really that popular? Black pudding, delicious. Um, especially good deep fried in the real Scottish way. That, we actually had deep fried on some uh, French fries for mm. the Americans. Chips, <laughs> um, yeah. Chips. Uh, uh, black pudding supper. That was good. That was good. They kind of tried to do like a nacho type thing where they crumbled it and they had it on the... The chips and they had some kind of like cheese and onions and stuff it was really good wow onions that's uh that's a vegetable showing up in a glaswegian dinner very unusual i mean they're caramelized so <laughs> you know they wanted to to show you a good time when you're over there i'm sure oh yeah we had a great time did you try any iron brew when you were in glasgow Oh my God, growing up. So we went over there once when I was like 12 or something. 
I have a twin brother and he couldn't get enough iron brew. I think it tastes like orange bubble gum it is the weirdest thing I've ever had. It's still up there, but I could I loved the uh the ketchup flavored potato chips. They were so good. I wish they had those over here. And the um the 99s in the ice cream, like we don't we didn't have that over here. I actually I just went to Tennessee. Um, I went to Nashville and I saw an ice cream. Like, you know how the ice cream places over there would have like the like stat- little statue things of ice cream with the 99 in it? They had one in Nashville. And I was like, where am I? <laughs> like, because you never see that over here. Um, but yeah, with you know, I'd always talk about going to get the ice cream with the 99 and that stuff. How do you like-, like? Yeah, delicious. Like it's a soft serve ice cream with uh, a flake chocolate stuck in it, right? Yeah. Which you kind of, you can crumble over the top and eat it. It sounds like you had the full range of Scottish culinary delights. You had ice cream, chips, iron brew, <laughs> um, all, all the good stuff over there. Did you try any haggis? Yeah. Wasn't uh, my mom was like you have to try it. But it's good. I guess it's good. I think I had to. I had it when I was like when I went over the first time, and I think they were just you know they were trying to gross us out because we're little kids and they were you know they want to be entertained. <laughs> it's really fun to mess with little kids like that when you're an adult. <laughs> Did they take you on a haggis hunt to hunt the haggis? They they did. I think maybe. I remember them saying something about that, and then um, we went to Loch Ness, but it was so foggy that you couldn't even see it. And then, you couldn't see the haggises scampering around in the the heather. Yeah, I think they just kind of dropped the joke, like after they got there, because they were like disappointed that you couldn't see anything. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that and the, we were trying to search for the Loch Ness monster for sure. Did you find it? That was too funny. <laughs> Did you, uh, but how do you feel about iron brew? Um, there was a time in my life that I enjoyed iron brew. Uh, in, in Edinburgh, the, if you go to the chip shop and you get a bag of chips, French fries, um, they come with salt and sauce. Uh, so not vinegar, but a kind of really watered down brown sauce has a lot of vinegar in it, but it's kind of sticky and unctuous and it sticks to the chips really nicely. But kind of the grease of the chips and the stickiness of the sauce starts to <laughs> coat the inside of your mouth after a while. And so you need something to cut through it. Uh, and it turns out that iron brew is an excellent solvent for that kind of thing. It looks like an industrial solvent as well. It's a very bright orange color, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and so yeah, with, with a bag of chips on the way home from the pub, a nice big bottle of Iron Brew is uh, is an excellent pairing. Um, would you ever make a beer that tastes like Iron Brew? That's an interesting question, yeah. I wonder if it would even be possible to replicate that very unique flavor. I, I can't describe the flavor of Iron Brew. I think, what did you call it, orange bubble gum? <laughs> It kind of does taste like that. The the rumor is that it's made from girders, right? It's made from actual iron, which I'm not sure if that's true, but it would no be, iron. 
Yeah, you'd have to make it a sour beer, wouldn't you? That's kind of the the latest trend, the latest fashion in brewing. Lots of sour beers. And uh, when I was back, you make Scotland, a sour beer. Um, you make a beer and then you you make it sour, mm -hmm. uh, basically. So when you uh, there are, there are a few different ways of doing it, but the most common one is something called quick souring or kettle souring, and you mash the 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 grain and the hot water and you extract that into the wort, that hot sweet liquid. You boil it a little bit to sterilize it and then you inoculate it, you cool it down and you inoculate it with some bacteria called lactobactillus. And those will over time sour the beer and you have to kind of leave it for a, a day or two or three days, check the pH and when it gets to the correct pH, you boil it again and that kills all the lactobactillus Thanks, guys. That's the end of your shift today. Uh, and then you ferment it as you would a normal beer with uh, with yeast and everything. Um, I don't like sour beer. <laughs> Maybe you just haven't found the right one yet. I used to not be a huge fan. I remember being really weirded out by it the first time somebody suggested trying it. Uh, and I found also that when you when I drink a, a sour beer, especially like a really sour beer, something with a really low pH, the first sip is often a bit like a kind of slap in the face. It feels so sour, but the subsequent sips are less like that. They're less aggressive. I don't know if the pH in your mouth kind of adjusts to the sourness of the beer or something, but you can really appreciate all the different flavors that go in there. And um, especially in the summer on a, a hot and sweaty day, it can be really refreshing. I just found, I mean, this is, there was like a huge sour beer trend in Philadelphia when I was living there. It was like 2010, 2011. And I was just like, why? Like, I really tried. I really tried <laughs> to get into it. And I had one that was like, a, it was also had cherries in it that was good. Or, well, it wasn't like I could drink it. <laughs> <laughs> but I was just like, why am I like, why am I paying more for like skunked beer? That's what I felt. But uh, which is true, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, in, in the past, all beer would have been sour beer eventually. Right. Because they were stored in, in wooden casks and because sanitation wasn't as good as it is now. So over time, all beer would have spoiled and gone sour. Um, but it turned out that some beers really suited that or sometimes the local microflora climate had a really good mix of, of bacteria and yeasts that produced a really interesting flavor. So do you play with the different strains of like bacteria for different flavors? Uh, some places do that. Yeah. So typically for quick souring, you just use one kind of, of lactobacillus, but there are some places and it, that's called quick souring because you can do it quickly and easily. But there are some places that do it in a more traditional way where they will kind of have a, a soup of mixed cultures of different kinds of yeasts and bacterias that produce a really complex and interesting flavor, uh, which they will sour their beer with. But that takes a lot more time and much more careful management. As so well. that's similar to like, um, like bread making, like a sourdough starter. Exactly. Yeah. So you've built up that that's your own particular yeast starter 
haven't you? And it has its own characteristics. Uh, and it's the same for, for those kind of mixed culture sours. There's some, um, there's actually some bread starters, but they have to be taken care of very well that will use a uh, lacto basilica because obviously could go, could actually go bad, you know? Right, yeah. Um, I mean, but, it is going bad, but it's going bad in a very controlled way. Yes, in a way that's like not going to make you sick. But, uh, or even, you know, even like blue cheese, you know, injecting bacteria that way. It's good. It's good stuff. Mm. Would you ever do a kind of, well, I guess you're not doing the food, but do you do, you do like collaborations, like pairings with your, with the restaurants that way? Um, we haven't done yet. Um, so we opened in March last year. Uh, oh, really wow. Classic timing on our part. Uh, and so we've never been open in a world without COVID for, for the whole time of our opening. It's been like this. And so before we opened, we had all these ideas and plans of events that we wanted to run and different collaborations we could do with local businesses. It's all kind of been put on halt because we don't want to have lots of people eating or touching the same utensils and things like that. But once things do get back to normal, yeah, we have plans to work together with either local restaurants or local food trucks. Food trucks aren't really a thing in Japan yet, but they're starting to take off a bit. Uh, and there is, there's one guy who we know in Tachikawa who runs a, a taco truck. And it would be great if he could come and park his truck outside when we're having an event you know, and provide food for our customers. And who knows, maybe we could prepare a special beer some kind of Mexican light lager to go with those tacos. I mean, the, yeah, because the lighter beers, I mean, like, you know, Corona's, stuff like that, Tecate. We don't use that word. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was happy when people stopped buying Corona because it made it cheaper for me. <laughs> Always on sale. <laughs> <laughs> You, you mentioned uh, the word skunked earlier, and I think that one of the key flavor profiles of Corona beer is that skunky kind of flavor, um, which partially, I think they add that in, they add some chemicals in, but also it's in clear bottles, right? Yeah. Uh, when ultraviolet light hits beer, it does produce that kind of skunky flavor and skunky aroma. So I don't know whether it's deliberate that they use the clear bottles to get that flavor profile or they get that flavor profile because they've always used clear bottles. But that's one of the reasons that Corona tastes like that. Hmm. That's why the lime is key. <laughs> yes, you, you need the lime in there, don't you? Um, speaking of flavor profiles, I always one of the flavor profiles that I don't really enjoy in beer is... But how do I, it's, people think I'm crazy when I say this, but like heifer vices, they taste like bananas to me. Mm. And don't, yeah, absolutely. What is that, uh, what is that bacteria? Like what, what makes it taste like that? <laughs> um, those are esters produced by the yeast. Um, and depending on, the the way it's fermented the particular kind of yeast you use and even the recipe so the grains include kind of precursor chemicals that get turned into those esters you can sometimes have a really strong and pronounced banana flavor in fact it doesn't really taste 
like banana to me. It tastes like those kind of banana sweets. It tastes like what you imagine bananas to taste like if you've never had a banana kind of thing, doesn't it? Yeah, like and the artificial I, fla banana flavoring. Exactly. Like yes. I honestly, I don't really care for that either. And I've had some beers which I haven't really liked because they're just like a big banana bomb. Um, but if you can balance it right, Hefeizen sometimes have a, a nice kind of clovey or black peppery kind of flavor as well, some nice phenols. If you can get all of those balanced well, then it can be, it can be very refreshing. But yeah, I agree that too much banana in beer is, is not good. I actually, I really enjoy though the um, that spicy pepper flavor. What uh, and pepper like peppercorn, right? Not like hot peppers. Right. Yeah. How like is black pepper? Yeah. How is that a how is that achieved? Uh, again, I think that's mm -hmm. that's from the yeast. So it's a, a lot of this comes down to the the temperature that you ferment the beer at it will either it will promote the creation of some different flavor compounds or suppress the creation of different flavor compounds depending on how you balance and manage the fermentation i wonder if i could get that flavor in bread yeah you might be able to if you used some hefites and yeast but yeah like i say you'd have to balance the the fermentation so i guess the proving you have to balance that quite carefully that's something I'll do. I'll write that one down. <laughs> we do um, try to pair some of the beers that we uh, sell here. Is that a helicopter going over your house or my house? I think it might mm -hmm. be my house. Yeah, it happened before. But Sorry about that. Yeah, there's some lunatic flying a helicopter around over my neighborhood. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, it could be the... Uh, the airbase just up the road from here. But um, one of the, the things we try to do is to pair some of the beers that we, we have with different things. And uh, I'm gonna do a bit of shameless self-promotion here. Uh, we also have a podcast. It's called Sakamichi Nights. Oh, really? Yes. Cool. Um, and every week we choose you know one or a few beers from our menu and we drink them and we talk about them a bit. Uh, and recently we've started trying to pair them with things as well. But I spin the wheel of pairings and it comes up with some category and then we have to, to pair the beer with something from that category. Uh, I think last night, we recorded an episode last night, which just got released today. And last night the wheel of pairings turned up a video game. So we had to, to pair the, the beer with a video game. <laughs> so what did you pair with? Or should we tune in to find out? Probably. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'll tell you my pairing. I won't tell you Dan's because you have to tune in to, to listen. Is it a competition? Do you get to vote on who's better? That's a good idea. We should do that. Yeah, we should have a poll for whose pairing was better every week. Um, so we tried a, a Pilsner last night, um, which I thought was uh, refined simplicity. So I wanted a, a video game that was also refined and simple. So I chose Bomberman. I don't know what that is. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> We've just got another fan for the podcast. What's uh? No, I don't know what Bomberman is. 
You've never played Bomberman? You uh, you and your friends control little guys who run around in a maze and you have to put down bombs which explode after some time and the objective is to blow up your friends while simultaneously not being blown up yourself. Ah, that sounds like fun. What, uh, what decade is that from? Uh, yeah, I'm possibly showing my age a bit here. It's, <laughs> it's one of those classic video games from the, the 80s or 90s. Like it's, it's been around for ages. I don't know if they've done a recent version of Bomberman, but it's like, mm-hmm. it's, it's a similar age to like Pac-Man or something like that. Oh, so it's an arcade game? Like classic yeah. arcade? Yeah, you would have been able to play it in an arcade back in the day. Or on your Atari ST. Oh, man, Atari. Wait, how old are you? <laughs> you look very young. <laughs> you look too young for Atari. That's what I'm going to say. I'm a student of history. That's true. I mean, video game. I was, oh, man. I was showing my age the other day. So Florida, like most um, apartment com- complexes down here, they have a pool. Um, so I'm in the pool and it's just like all these little kids. Well, not little, like probably between eight and like 13, 14 or something. And they were like, they were just like throwing a football around. And I'm like, you know, they're looking at me like, who's this, you know, is this, I don't think they actually live here. (laughs) I don't want to put them on the spot, but I don't think they actually live here. I think that they live at one of the other ones that like doesn't have a pool, but like there's no gate on my apartment complex. So like, you know, you could get away with whatever you want. And uh, so I taught them how to play this game called Goofy, where like you, it's a racing game, but like you think of a category and then uh, you have to shout out um, things in the category. And if they, you know, they guess the one you're thinking of, you yell Goofy and then you start the race. And like whoever wins gets to be the person who picks the category. We used to play it all the time when I was a kid. And uh, so I picked, oh, video game consoles. This will be easy for them. I picked a Nintendo 64 and none of them had any idea what it was. <laughs> I was just like, Oh my god, I'm so old. <laughs> they were like, Nintendo Switch. Nintendo I was like, it's an old one. They go, Nintendo DS. <laughs> I was like, oh my god. <laughs> if I picked a toy, well, the toy, we would have been the Nintendo sixty four would have been released years before any of them were born. Right? Yeah, but it's a classic. Like I still it's know what an Atari is, you know? <laughs> So it's just like, come on, guys. <laughs> that does sound like a fun game, though. It is a fun game. And it, uh, you know, these kids, uh, they're always there and they're not. I was actually very surprised because they're like, oh, I go, I'm going to go. I kind of want to play the game. And like, so I kind of had distracted them away from going and playing Fortnite. So I was like, cool, got some kids to be physically active and like not <laughs> just be in the screens. But um, it was just like, you know, it's a fun game. I played it all the time growing up. So. Can I tell you a Florida story? And you can oh, you can rank this on how Florida it sounds. Okay. Um, one of our regular customers is an American guy from Florida. He told me a story about when he was growing up. Um, so near his house, 
there was kind of a, a drainage ditch out there. And when it rained, I think he said, um, lots of snakes would come and collect in this drainage ditch. And then his neighbor, who was also his PE teacher, would come out of her house and shoot all the snakes with an assault rifle. And just the image of a lady shooting a pit full of snakes sounded like one of the most American things I could possibly imagine. Um, I mean, I didn't grow, I didn't grow up in Florida, but that sounds super Florida. I mean, especially because like, they're those, they're like, they're more like canals, I guess, um, because Florida is swampland. So when they have the groundwater come up, they need someplace for it to go. So they have all these man-made canals that are full of snakes and alligators too, not just snakes. But, um, have you ever done the thing where... <laughs> I mean, this is kind of just something like every, all, every American does. You go into Google and then you put a uh, Florida man and then you put your birthday and you see what comes up. <laughs> you see what Florida man was up to on your birthday. Yeah, because it's a, like in the news, it's always like a Florida man and, uh, and just like the most ridiculous like thing to get arrested for <laughs> like that you possibly can do. Um, I don't remember who mine was, but... Yeah, judging by the snake story, it seems like people do get up to some fairly ridiculous things in Florida. But probably the most. It's just, like, a land of, like, it's it's such a strange place. Because you have to go, you have to go north to go south, you know? Like, if you go south, Florida's got a very, um, you know, urban, diverse population and then the north is very more like rural and you know has more of the southern influence of like you know the southern states obviously so and also in more south florida you have a lot of uh what we call snowbirds so people that have a house or old old retirement age people that have a house like up north that come to florida in the winter and then they go back um in the summer so it's just a, it's like a very weird, bizarre place. But you also have like the people that live here because of the tax codes, right? You have the super wealthy and then you have everybody else that works for them. So it's, and it's such a uh, tourist economy, like nobody makes anything here that, uh, you know, you really do see uh, wealth income gap, you know, on full display. Um, but it's, you know, it's also one of America's playgrounds with like Miami and all that, the money, money laundering, the Miami vice side of it. It's kind of a, it's a crazy, crazy place to be for sure. <laughs> for sure. Rattlesnakes and AK-47. I mean, I would assume there has to be a tiger in that story too. Like, <laughs> some crazy. Maybe, maybe she was riding on a tiger as she was biting <laughs> up the snakes. Probably. <laughs> um, so you got a guitar back great. there. Yeah, I, I would love to visit someday. <laughs> someday? Yeah, it is fun. A lot of people, you know, it's a good vacation destination. <laughs> um, do you play your guitar on your podcast at all? Uh, no, I can promise that I do not play the guitar in the podcast. <laughs> all right. Just, just wondered. <laughs> 
but yeah, we've been talking for like two hours now. So, <laughs> um, thank you very much for for taking some time to talk to me today. It's been really fun. Yeah, thanks for going. Uh, hope I didn't get too nerdy for everyone with the technical technical talk of beer, but uh, I was really interested uh, in learning more about that and. I feel like I learned so much about the culture and everything. I hope uh, everything goes well with the lockdowns and stuff. So. Yeah, we'll be all right. Um, if you are ever in Tokyo, please do come by. Um, we're in Tachikawa, which is in the west of Tokyo, just a, a short five-minute walk from the station. Uh, and if you're not in Tokyo, then you can you can hear more of my voice on the Sakamichi Nights podcast uh, every week. All right, I might. Uh, I'm definitely gonna listen. Maybe I'll, uh, you know, maybe we can do a, an episode or something. That would be fun. <laughs> yeah, that would be fun. We'd have to figure out a way of getting the beer to you so you could taste it and <laughs> say what you think about it. Hey, maybe sometimes we have American beers in, so we could figure out a beer that we we both have access to. That'd be cool. Yeah, I saw you with a picture of a, or a T-shirt, a Voodoo Ranger, on your website. We had uh, an event last weekend like a small event uh, a voodoo ranger tap takeover so we had a bunch of different kinds of voodoo ranger beer on tap and then we had some merch from the brewery so everyone who got a, a beer got a raffle ticket as well and then uh, the ones who we, we raffled off some some t-shirts and some hats and some stickers and things like that that's a i really i like drinking that beer but i just the logo with the skeleton and everything is cool <laughs> it is pretty cool isn't it yeah yeah. All right. Well, uh, yeah, I'll talk to you. Talk to you next time. <laughs> All right. Thanks for uh, watching Chef Grace's Place. Um, definitely go check out his this podcast. Uh, I'll have all the links in the description, and uh, I'll see you guys next time. <laughs>